So there's a, there's a thing about preaching every week. I, I didn't do this in, the, in my old church. I didn't preach every week. Um, when you preach every week, you have to look at the text every week. And sometimes I start looking at that on Sunday uh, after I've preached. I start looking at what's coming down the pike. And, um, and so I have a solid six days of getting beaten up by a text, being um, uh, bent in directions I don't want to go, and um, really be confronted with a lot of my own shortcomings and blind spots. And so now you get about a half an hour of that as well. Um, It might seem like you would say, well, then I don't want to read the Bible if it's going to beat me up like that. But it's more like, like a deep massage. Like it really is good because it really is life-giving. This week, I've been thinking a lot about what Jesus says, his words. How Jesus says really hard things, really harsh things at times. He almost seems like he contradicts himself even at times. He says in one breath that he is the only way to heaven. He is an exclusive savior. And then in another breath, he says, but I forgive you, and I came to save all. He says things like, you must die in order to live. You must be willing to give up everything in order to gain everything. Jesus continually is saying hard things to us. There's two words that we're going to focus on today. Subversive and disruptive. Jesus is subversive, and Jesus is disruptive. He is subversive because he is always undermining our plans. He's always undermining our love. He's always undermining and bringing to question our motives. He is disruptive because he is always showing us the depth of our sin, our blind spots, our failures, and he is continually meeting us with his love that he says is fathomless, his grace that he says is amazing, and his mercy, which is always more. In that way, Jesus is always subversive and he's always disruptive. And when we put our faith in this Jesus... When we meet this Jesus who is subversive and disruptive, then we become a part of his subversive and disruptive kingdom. In Korea, at the turn of last century, 1900s, there was a massive revival. Korea, up until then, was about 0.01% Christian. And today, it's around 40% Christian. What happened in that revival was that Koreans, men and women, would get up in public in their village squares or in their town meetings, and they would confess their sins. They would talk about how they cheated, how they lied, how they were angry with their neighbor. They talked about how they had stolen things, all the horrible things they had done. They stood up and they confessed them. This is very subversive in that culture because Korea is an honor-shame culture. You don't get up and talk about your sin. You keep that hidden. But what happened is in that subversiveness, it disrupted these little towns. 
And people would ask, why would you do that? Why would you confess your sins? Why would you tell other people all the wrong things you did? And they said, because my identity, my life is in Christ. Look at what he has done for me. To follow Christ means that now you are part of a subversive and disruptive kingdom. Subversive. Because now you have a different motivation for your life. Your life is to glorify God, to grow with him, to have a relationship with him, to experience his love at a deeper level. It's disruptive because now you have different values. We value what God values, as he talks about in the Bible. We are countercultural in our responses to this world and to the culture that doesn't know God. We don't look to condemn them. We look to proclaim to them the love of Jesus. This is exactly what Peter is doing in 1 Peter. He is laying out a subversive and disruptive culture. He calls it a living hope. Something very different. Something that is countercultural. Something that shapes the way we live in a world that is so broken, full of suffering and hatred. Peter is telling his friends in this passage that we're about to read, you and me, that when we put our trust in Jesus, we are now subversive and disruptive for him. Now, I want to warn us, this passage, we can very easily start to read this passage through. We are not the center of this passage. Jesus is the center of this passage. This is why every song we sang up until this point was about the love of God for you. That's why every song we have sung so far is all about how God says you are loved and you are his. Because we need to have that perspective when we read hard words like submission. Because they can easily start to maybe confuse us and distract us from what Jesus has for us in this passage. So hear these words. These are life-giving words. Likewise, wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adornings be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Lord, we do not want our prayers to be hindered. (laughs) And so we need you to change us, to change our hearts, especially for husbands and wives. When we consider marriage, Lord, there's so much there. There's so much that can confuse us and distract us. And so, Holy Spirit, really, 
take these words and drive them deep into our hearts of who we are and whose we are. And then let us live lives that truly bring you glory by submitting and by bringing honor. So Lord, we need your help to do that. Be with us now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Peter is, has been talking about this subversive and disruptive kingdom for the last couple of weeks now. He started off talking about us doing good in front of non-believing neighbors and friends and family and co-workers, even doing good under corrupt governments so that in our disruptive witness, some might become believers. He then goes on to talk about servants last week how they are to endure suffering in the hands of evil masters, remembering Christ and his suffering, and how now suffering for us is a way that actually connects us with Christ. It is subversive in the way now that we look at hard times in our life. We see them now as good things. And instead of reviling those that cause our suffering, we seek to love them. And this week, we're going to look at how Jesus shapes the home, to be subversive and disruptive through submission and honor. So we're going to look at submission first, then we're going to look at honor, and then we're going to make some application about marriage. So first, submission. When Peter was writing this letter that we have been studying over the last uh, couple of weeks, the Roman Empire highly valued the family unit. In fact, they believed the family unit was the core of society. If the family was strong, then the, then the society is strong. And so they actually talk about submission all the time. But they talked about it in a very heavy-handed way, that men were supposed to keep their families in line by being hard on their families, by having a strong rule over their families. Submission was used as oppression and suppression of wives and children and servants. Now, this word submission within the family unit can be highly problematic, as we all know. We don't have to beat around the bush on this one. This is a hot topic because, frankly, it's been highly abused by men even today and especially today. Sadly, I have seen and I know many who have experienced a harsh submission within families and even sadder, families that call themselves Christians. And even maybe in my own family, my children have experienced my sinfulness when I call for submission. But Karen Jobes, who is my favorite commentator on the book of Peter, points out this about this passage, that this passage is actually redefining and reshaping the word submission, a word that would have been very popular by everyone in this culture. And in fact, the Bible makes this word a beautiful part of gospel living. She says this, Greek moral philosophers and the New Testament talk about submission in profoundly different ways. As the Greeks talk about submission as an act of control and power and suppression that was to keep the society stable, the apostles defined submission as a voluntary act of honor and reflects a value that captures the heart, the heart of believers, and it transforms not just their relationship with their husbands and their wives, but with everyone. 
Submission in the Bible is a beautiful thing. It is subversive and disruptive in nature because it is the willingness to honor and serve and submit. It's voluntary. Submission is something you give, not something that is demanded. Submission is a result of being loved by God, finding your identity in him and trusting him in all things. This is why Peter says, wives, be submissive, be submissive, be subject to your own husbands. But then he throws a little wrinkle in there. And he says, even those that don't believe, even those that aren't Christians, because he's writing to Christian women. The background to this is that slaves and women were the lowest of the low in Greco-Roman culture. Peter is writing to a group of people that are seen as ignorant and uneducated and valueless. And so Peter, as he addresses them, he's saying, no, you have value. You have purpose. You have meaning. You have an identity. I see you. And I see that many of you are in very hard situations. You are married to men that do not believe in Jesus Christ. Peter is hearkening back to when he tells the slaves and the servants who suffer unjustly. He's saying, women, so likewise, you will have to endure. But Peter is encouraging these women who have become Christians, who have tasted the goodness of God and put their faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, that that is now their identity. Now, some might say, especially today, why didn't these women just get divorced? Just leave them. Well, this social structure was very different from our social structure. I want to make that point. In our social structure, there is places for women not to stay in abusive relationships. If you are in an abusive relationship, you do not stay in that relationship. You are empowered, and I want to empower you to get out of that relationship. And I know that that is hard. And as you endure, and as you look to Christ, I pray for you. But this social situation, this social structure. These women could not leave. The Bible is clear that there are three uh, opportunities or um, three allowances to divorce. The first is Jesus says, if um, a spouse cheats, cheats on a spouse, if they have uh, adultery, then the other spouse can, can divorce them. If there is abandonment by a believer and a non-believer, so if an if a, uh, unbeliever leaves a believer, so a man becomes a Christian, the wife says, I don't want anything to do with that, and she leaves, then they can get divorced. Under that, abandonment is also abuse. If there is abuse in a relationship, there can be grounds for divorce. What Peter is saying here, though, to these women, and we have to suspend our Western thought here, he's saying there are times where you are married to a man who does not believe what you believe. And you must submit and stay. Why? For the sake of the husband becoming a Christian. Now, this is so hard for us because we live in an individualistic world. We live in a, in a culture that is all about me and my rights. And, and this is where the gospel is subversive. This gospel is subversive and disruptive because it calls Christians to actually die to themselves for the sake of others. And this is what Peter is saying to these women. He's saying, by your respectful and pure conduct, maybe your husbands will become believers. 
And he says, look. Look at what he says about the subversive nature of following Christ. You now have a different identity. One that displays a different attitude. An attitude that is internal. Your heart is changed. Your response to your life is changed. Not an outward appearance. He draws this contrast. Not with an outward appearance, but with an inward beauty. A gentleness. A quiet spirit. I want you to hear me on this too. What Peter is doing is empowering these women. You are not a doormat. You are a doorway. You don't just get walked over. Now, through your submission to your husband, through your identity in Christ, they can see Jesus Christ and be saved. He is giving them great hope. When all the other women are complaining about their husbands, looking for ways to undermine them and to manipulate them in this culture, as a Christian, you now have a different identity, a different goal. You want to honor your husband Even call him Lord, he says here. Now with a small L, not with a big L. Call him Lord to give him honor. Because in that, you honor the big L, Lord. My best friend in high school, his name was Nathan Prince. Nathan was, uh, he was a big guy. He was homeschooled. I went to a Christian school. He He was a big guy. He worked out a lot. Um, and he was like a man. He was like a full-grown man. I was thinking about it this week. Like, he shaved in, like, ninth grade. And Nathan um, uh, had a mother and a father and a sister. And it always kind of struck me that his mom was, just looked very young. She just was a young, young mom. And, uh, and one day, I finally asked Nathan, I was like, Nathan, how old is your mom? And he was like, oh, my mom is 32. I'm sorry, 34. My mom is 34. We were 15. I said, wait, what? Your mom's 34. Like, how old was she when she had you? Well, you can do the math. And he said, I said, but you have an older sister. And he said, yeah, my mom and dad got married when my mom was 14 and my dad was 15. They got married in California and they were homeless for a number of years. They then had children on the streets, and they lived on the streets for a couple more years. And then the, the husband, who I really didn't meet him very much. I saw him maybe, maybe a half a dozen times in the couple years that I knew Nathan. He got a job selling um, security systems, and he became very wealthy, and he traveled the world putting in security systems. In their late 20s, uh, Nathan's mom became a Christian, but his dad wanted nothing to do with it. He wasn't, he wasn't interested in that. And he would, uh, he would let them go to church, but when he was home, he wouldn't let them go to church. He wanted them to stay home. And so she did, and she submitted to him. And through this, over the years and, and over the time, uh, she would ask my dad, who was the pastor of the church that she attended, what do I do with this? Like, he wants nothing to do with, with Jesus. He wants nothing to do with our religion. Um, can I divorce him? And my dad would take her to this passage and say, No. You can't. He hasn't abandoned you. And maybe for the sake of the gospel, he provided well for them. He was a good man. He just didn't believe in Jesus. I remember one day they moved back to California and she called my dad and she said, I've got a crazy story for you. She said, the other day, my husband woke up. He turned to me and he said, you need to tell me about Jesus. 
And she said, why? You have not been interested in, in him for our whole marriage. He said, because I had a dream and a man came to me and said, your wife's right. Which, I mean, we've all had that dream, right? Uh, he said, your, your wife's right. You need to have her tell you about Jesus. And from that, he became a Christian. And from that, his whole life turned around. She stayed the course. She, was submit, she submitted to her husband. But more importantly, she submitted to God, who kept her in that marriage. And through that, through her witness, her disruptive and subversive witness to her husband of loving him like Christ loves the church, he became a believer. And that's all because of God's glory. Okay, Peter turns to men, to husbands, and he says, after going on about women submitting and why they should submit, he now says to husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. It's very easy for us to kind of move over that word live. That, that word live is a deep, deep word. In the Greek, it means intimacy. It, it says, be intimate with your wife in an understanding way. Now, he's not talking about just physical intimacy. He's talking about a deep connection with your wife, which was very countercultural for the Greco-Roman Empire. He's saying for men to actually see your wives. Ask your wives questions. Get to know your wives. Put your wife before yourself. Intimacy, I believe, is the number one killer of marriages. I think it's when men are, do not pursue intimate relationships with their wives. Getting to know them, understand them, see them. He goes on, Peter says, why? Why are you to live peaceably or to live um, intimately with your wives in an understanding way? To show them honor because they are the weaker vessel. Now, Peter is not sexist here. He's not pejoratizing women by calling them weak. Pastor, or Peter is a good pastor. He loves women, and he loves family, and he loves marriage. This statement of honoring your wife because she is the weaker vessel is a statement of protection, of guarding, of caring for her, of standing with her. Trust me, I watched my wife give birth to four children. There's nothing weak about my wife. That is not what he is referring to. He's referring to men protecting their wives. This is countercultural for many different reasons, but one is if you hearken back to Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve are in the garden and the snake deceives Eve and Adam is just standing there. He is not protecting his wife, not dumping on your wife one more thing because your wife has had a busy day too. Because your wife has been poured out as well. And maybe I'm just speaking to myself here because I know that I have a tendency of doing that. Honor the weaker vessel. Why? Because they are co-heirs with you in grace. There is a, I think, a, mis, a misstep here many times in church that perhaps churches do not see that men and women 
are equal at the foot of the cross. Many ways they complement each other, but they are equal at the foot of the cross. Grace is the key to having a subversive and disruptive marriage for the kingdom. One of the biggest things that I deal with in marriage counseling, and frankly, I don't do a whole lot of marriage counseling anymore because it's exhausting. But one of the things that I see over and over again is a scorecard mentality where men and women are keeping a little ledger where you did this, where you did that, where you did this, where you did that. It's exhausting. My friends, grace is never exhausting. And that is what Peter is calling husbands to be to their wives. Gracious. Seeing them as co-heirs in the sacrifice of the kingdom. Husbands seek intimate relationships with their wives that grow deep meaning, that protect them and see them as equal co-heirs in Christ. Why? Because that is exactly how Christ loved the church. It says a weird phrase here at the end. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, do you want to be men of prayer? Love your wives. Seek to do these things for your wives. Christ was a man of prayer. Why? Because he sought to do this for his wife, for his bride, which is the church, to honor her, to protect her, and to die so that she could be co-heirs with him. I want to make quickly three observations about marriage from this passage. The first is this. A godly marriage is a workshop, not a restaurant. What do I mean by that? First, getting married is not the main goal of a Christian. Okay? I want to make that really clear. There are singles here, and God loves you, and we love you. And marriage is not the end goal for a Christian. Marriage is good, but so is singleness. And the church has messed this up by treating single people as second-class citizens. They are not. You are a blessing to this church. But because we have put such an unbiblical weight on marriage, we have twisted the purpose of marriage. We see marriage as completion, a place where the other person is to serve and complete us. That's why we see, um, something's happening over here. Maybe the Holy Spirit is telling me to wrap it up. There is an unhealthy view of marriage, that marriage is seen as a restaurant, not a workshop. Oh, once I get married, then, uh, you know, this other person will complete me and serve me and do everything that I want them to do, and I'll be happy, right? Because that's what we all want, happiness. Wrong. Marriage is not a restaurant where you choose where you want to be served. It's a workshop where God, it put two horrible sinners together in order for them to rely on him. And the workshop that he is working on you is so that you will have a deeper relationship with him. And then you can have a deep relationship with your spouse. Because we don't see marriage through that lens, we see it through the selfish lens of you complete me by serving me. Then when we encounter tough times in our marriages, we immediately go to blame shifting and scorecard keeping. We easily become frustrated, angry, and bitter. And in a marriage... 
a spouse can easily start to want to mold that person to look the way they want them to look. That's my second point. Godly marriage is about celebrating otherness. A biblical definition of marriage is when that God puts one man and one woman together. Opposites attract. Opposites fit. They complement each other. I'm going to be very general here, and I certainly do welcome the discussion with you all about this. But from my humble opinion, men and women complement each other and they frustrate each other. God designed men and women to complement each other. They fit together. And we won't go into detail, but I think we understand even anatomically, they fit together. But because of the fall, they frustrate each other. And so in this complementary design that God has designed us, there is now frustration for us in marriage. But that frustration God uses to draw us closer to himself and rely on him. Stop trying to change your spouse and start celebrating the differences in your spouse. Start seeing how God is using their differences to deepen his relationship with you. And the third is this. Godly marriage is to glorify God. The goal in your marriage is not to have your spouse fit your mold. This is what Karen Job says. On the model of Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ, marital love is the understanding, is the resolve in one's life to be committed to the well-being of your spouse's life. Well-being of your spouse's life. Women, submit to your husbands. Husbands, honor your wives. Look to each other as trying to do the best you can to make their life as happy as it can be. And as you do that, rely on God. And that means you have to die to self. And when we die to ourselves, when we find our satisfaction in God alone, then God is glorified in our marriages. Marriage is a workshop where you are made to look more like Christ by loving your spouse's differences and looking toward their well-being by seeking to be satisfied in God alone. How do we do this? Well, we come to the one who is our groom, who did that all for us, who died for us, who went the distance for us, and that's why we come to the table, to celebrate that and to gain strength as we seek to love our spouses well, as we seek to be subversive and disruptive in this culture for the sake of Christ. So let's go to the table now. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. That was a hard passage, a lot in there. So Holy Spirit, apply accordingly. Mold us and move us. Um, Reveal our blind spots. Lord, even, even right now, uh, maybe there's husbands and wives that are, maybe they had a fight before they stepped in here. Um, uh, that's not beyond uh, possibility. Lord, I pray that even now you'll be working in those marriages. Uh, give them the strength to say sorry, to move toward each other, to confess and repent. Lord, in all of our relationships, let us look to be subversive and disruptive for your sake, looking for ways that we can speak truth in love to those around us. And as we come to the table now, feed our faith in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.